Thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's really fun to have you. Uh, if, if today's your first Sunday, man, you picked a really awesome, fun day to jump in. We're glad that you made it with all the, the slick roads out there. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to only be in verse 1 and 2. Uh, and so while you're headed there, if you're new to the Bible, that's near the back half in what we call the New Testament. And you can also go to the table of contents and just find the page number. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift that it is to gather with your people. God, even just the, the joy that it is to sing truth and be reminded of how you feel about us, because I've forgotten this week, and how you, how you pursue us, and how you're, there, there's nothing that you're willing to not do to come chase us down. So today, we pray that you would do that. God, we pray that you would meet us and all of our preconceived notions about you. Just blow those right out of the water. And would you replace them with just a sense of your presence, a sense of who you are. And today, God, as, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that we would hear you teach us. So come and give us open, receptive hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in 1991, there was, a, there was a flea market enthusiast that discovered a picture frame that he liked. It was four bucks. So he pulled out his wallet. He bought the picture frame for $4, and he took it home and didn't think much about it. About two years later, for some reason, he was rummaging through some of his stuff, and he uh, grabbed the picture frame, and he opened it up. And in the back part of the frame, he found this really old historic document. Lo and behold, he had some uh, professionals come and look at it, and it was a first edition copy of the Declaration of Independence that had been shoved in the back of the picture frame. And it was valued just north of a million dollars, if you can believe it. Uh, and, and that story's crazy, right? It's like, how, how in the world does a guy spend $4 on a picture frame and, and there's hidden treasure, an old ancient document, the Declaration of Independence behind it? And what's really bizarre is that's actually not an uncommon story if you just read the news or kind of hear what's happening uh, from time to time. So here's some other almost accidental discoveries of shocking things of value. Uh, there was a contractor who found $182,000 in a wall while he was remodeling a bathroom. He just discovered $182,000 hiding out in the wall. Uh, then there was the person who bought a $3 Chinese bowl at a garage sale, just a normal bowl, didn't realize what it was, took it home, and lo and behold, it ended up being over 1,000 years old. It's part of the Song Dynasty, and it was worth over $2.2 million dollars. Spent three bucks on it. And then finally, here's one, a California family. They stumbled across a can in their backyard filled with ancient gold coins. That sounds like a fake story, but it's true. It was worth over $10 million, right? And, and you just wonder, like, what kind of hidden treasure is all around us that we've just forgotten about? It's hiding in plain sight, and we don't even know where it is. And I say all those stories to say this, that something similar has actually happened in the Western church, Something really similar has happened where there's some, something of great value that's been just hiding in plain sight. And it isn't an ancient document of the Declaration of Independence. It isn't a can of gold coins. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost been totally lost and forgotten about among American Christians, even though, as John Stott says, it is the most widely known and yet least obeyed part of Jesus' teaching, right? So everybody knows it, but it's the least obeyed of Jesus' teaching. So think of the Sermon on the Mount like this. This is the state of the universe address if Jesus ever had one, right? This is the state of the universe address. This is the closest thing that we see to a manifesto that Jesus ever 
explained. Uh, And for the early church, it's fascinating. The Sermon on the Mount was the foundational document. It was the most important document. It was the foundational teaching that they built their entire life around. There, There wasn't anything more formative for their discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus than this sermon. There wasn't anything as as powerful. No text of scripture that we have record of was more memorized or more quoted or more referred back to or more shaping for the early church for the first 350 years than the Sermon on the Mount. It was the most important thing to them. In fact, uh, St. Augustine, he called it a perfect standard of the Christian life, right? A perfect standard of the Christian life. Uh, for, for a lot of Christians, and this is true not just for us, but throughout history, the Sermon on the Mount has been one of the most evaded and avoided things that Jesus has ever spoken. In fact, one commentator, he was writing a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that he had just finished reading over 20 commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said that he could sum all of them up like this, ways of avoiding and evading Jesus. <laughs> so, so there's something about it that's really tough where people read it and they go, oh, this is an impossible ideal. Nobody could ever actually meet this standard. For other Christians, what they'll do is they'll approach it a different way and they'll read the sermon and they'll say, oh, here's what's happening. Jesus is actually crushing us with law so that he'll create this need for grace. So we can't, we're not expected to actually do this stuff. This is just meant to be a crushing burden so that it'll drive us to grace. And for others, this has been the most important, the most shaping thing on their journey as they try to follow Jesus and the world. Uh, For Martin Luther King Jr., this was essential for his struggle for freedom and equality. And then for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, any Dietrich Bonhoeffer fans out there, if you're not, you need to become one. He's amazing. Start with his book, The Cost of Discipleship, or in German, it was just called Discipleship, because discipleship is costly. Uh, he, He was so shaped by the sermon that it actually carried him all the way to and through his martyrdom in a Nazi concentration camp in 1945. And here's why I say all of that. Something has happened in my soul over the last eight months as I've started to reread and restudy the Sermon on the Mount. It has completely captivated me. It's totally changed the way that I see what it is to be a Christian. It's, 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 it's this weird moment where uh, me as a pastor and a follower of Jesus, I'm reading things that Jesus said, thinking to myself, I don't know if I agree with that, and I've got to deal with that. That Jesus is actually demanding things of me that I don't even know what to do with. I mean, this has been unbelievable. It's terrifying. It's beautiful. It's disturbing. It's life-changing. And here's the whole idea. You cannot read the Sermon on the Mount. You can't read it and be unaffected. You're either going to hate what Jesus says, or you're going to have to deal with it and actually decide that you want to follow him. But you can't read this and just go about your business. So without further ado, let's jump in to the sermon. Uh, Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a lot of context and background, and then we will eventually get to Matthew 5 uh, verse 1. So hang with me. We're actually going to get to Matthew 5. It'll just take us a few minutes to get there. So here's here's why we got to start with context. One of the most helpful things that you need to learn as someone that is reading the Bible is that the Bible was first not written to you. It was written for you. Meaning it was actually written to certain people in a certain time frame with a specific culture and context. And the way that they read it is really important because it can't mean to us what it never meant to them, right? So two things about their context that you need to grapple with. The first is that they were living in what's now called Second Temple Judaism, right? First century Jewish culture, Second Temple Judaism. So bear with me while I give you just like a 60 second history lesson here on why this matters. So here's what was happening in the cultural air at the time in the first century. If you were a Jewish person living in the time of the first century, 
the, the crazy thing about this is that you are filled with oppression. You're filled with a sense of persecution. This struggle was a real reality for Jewish people at the time. And you are longing for a Messiah to come and redeem and restore the way Israel was supposed to be. So that was the, the feel culturally. And here's why. Here's what had happened. In 586 BC, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he came with his army and he attacked the people of Israel. He burned the temple down to the ground and he took a bunch of the people of Israel into captivity and he brought them as exiles into Babylon. And he tried to basically destroy Jewish culture altogether. And this was a difficult, crazy time. I mean, you had young children and women and and all these people being dragged to this foreign land and being harshly oppressed and abused and mistreated and persecuted. And this went on for years and years and years. And this was kind of leading up to just the story of Israel had been one of suffering and one of persecution. And then finally, in 445 BC, the people of Israel start to eventually make their way back. So they start to go back to Jerusalem. They're now uh, let go and they can return home. But they return home and things are not what they used to be. So they try to rebuild the temple, but it doesn't quite get back to its original glory. They try to restore uh, Israel to its original prosperity and power, but it just, things are not the same. And then things start to get worse and worse and worse. And eventually the Roman Empire starts to take over. So by the time the first century rolls around, here's what's happening. If you're a Jewish person, for the last 500 plus years or so, your narrative is one of opposition, one of being persecuted, one of being abused and mistreated. And you are just reading all this stuff that God had spoken through the prophets about this coming Messiah. And you're just sitting around wondering, where is God? And where is this Messiah? And is he ever going to show up and do anything. They're longing to have power restored. They're longing to be a prosperous nation again. They're longing to have a sense of home and a sense of authority again. And all of this had dissipated. And so to make matters worse, what had happened is God actually had been totally silent for 400 years. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have a 400-year period of silence. And so what began to happen is the Jewish people, by the time the Roman Empire move in, the Jewish people start to just make a deal with the devil, for a lack of a better way to say it. And they start to make compromise and sell out just to maintain a sense of political power just to maintain a sense of having a seat at the table and having a cultural voice, they begin to get in bed with the Roman Empire and they start to lose some of their Jewish heritage. And they're just, you know, all we care about is just having prosperity and peace. All we care about is having a life where we have power and, we, and, and things are going the way that we want. And so even their king, King Herod, had been totally sold out to the Roman Empire by this time. So that's part of what's happening. Now, the other part of what's happening is that this is also a a Greco-Roman world, a Greco-Roman culture. And here's what's so crazy about this. The Sermon on the Mount is actually recorded in Greek. So Greek culture and Roman culture had just infiltrated the Jewish people. And one of the biggest questions that was being asked in this time period by the Greeks and by the Romans, they'd spent hundreds of years philosophizing about what is the good life? The, The question they were asking is this. How does someone experience true happiness? What is true happiness? And how do we live into that? And so when we say happiness, we kind of have this surfacey level, you know, emotional view of happiness. But in that culture, happiness was like, no, how do you live in alignment with reality so that you can actually experience the, the good life? And what is that? What is the good life? And they had a lot of different ways of answering that. Uh, You had some like Aristotle that was saying, it's all about ethics and morality and you've got to live a certain way and that's the good life. 
then you had Epicurean who was like, no, we don't even know if there is a God. Let's just pursue pleasure and do what's right in your own eyes, and that's what the good life is. And so here's the whole idea, that by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the Jewish people have these two cultures colliding and melding together. On one end, you have the Jewish people longing for a Messiah, but their view of what that was had radically shifted. Now they're wanting this powerful military leader that's going to kick out Rome. They're wanting someone that's going to overtake the Roman Empire and restore uh, the, the, the Jewish people to prosperity and peace and power once again. And they're wondering about the good life. How do you find the good life? How do you seek the good life out? Now, here's what's so crazy about all of this. That's their culture then, and you're sitting here wondering, okay, what does all that have to do with us? Well, if you study their culture long enough, you begin to realize that even though 2019 is very, very different in a lot of significant ways, there's also some, starking, there's, or some stark similarities between their culture and our culture today. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. That if you look at what was going on in their mind and their heart, what's going on in our culture today, there's some ways that we actually are the same. So think about our culture today. There are two questions that, whether you realize this or not, every one of you in this room and everybody in our city is just instinctively, subconsciously always asking. Here they are. Here's the first question. What is the good life and how do we get it? And number two, how can we experience true human flourishing? And you don't even maybe realize that you're asking this question, but in your mind you have a vision of what the good life is. You have a concept of what it is to have a, a life that's flourishing and a life that's thriving. And the, the, the point that I want to make is that probably more often than you realize that your vision of what that good life is has been radically shaped by our world rather than by the teachings of Jesus. That you're probably more uh, shaped and informed and enculturated by the vision of the good life that the world is offering you than what Jesus actually came to give us. And here's what's really crazy. Doesn't it feel like our culture is the most polarized that it's ever been? Like nod your head if you, feel, if you feel like that. Doesn't it feel like there are two categories of people you have on the one end of the spectrum, you have your liberals or your progressives. And then on the far other end over here, you have your conservatives. And it almost feels like our nation is just split down the middle 50-50, right? 50% of us are progressive, 50% of us are conservative, and we couldn't be more different from each other. So let me say it another way. You have like your Fox News people, right? And then you have your MSNBC people. And those people do not get along, right? Those people, we don't have anything in common. We're very different from each other. And maybe that's speaking in extremes. But here's what I want you to see, that behind both of these, there's the pursuit of the good life, isn't there? If you're a progressive or if you're conservative, you're still pursuing the good life. So here's an example. Progressives are deconstructing old institutions because they're seen as dangerous and a threat to our freedom. And so they're deconstructing old institutions. Uh, progressives are developing new sexual norms because the conservative sex ethic is going to rob us of freedom and rob us of pleasure and, and even hurt us and who we are in our unique identity. So we're going to deconstruct old uh, we're going to deconstruct old sexual norms and create new ones. And then progressives, they're fighting for diversity and justice and equality. And, and a lot of this can be really, really good, but also there's almost just this fighting for equality for equality's sake. Now on the other end, you have conservatives, and they're seeking the good life too. They're, they're fighting for tradition. We want to preserve tradition. Progressives are trying to blow it up. Let's preserve, preserve tradition. You have them also preserving free, unre unregulated markets. You have conservatives maintaining a, a high value of family, prosperity, safety, 
and security, and it feels like our world couldn't be more different from each other. You're in one of these two camps. Which one are you? This is how it feels in our world. But here's the point that I want to make before we get to Matthew 5. The point that I want to make is that actually what's so bizarre is if you really start to assess the way that people live, is that even though we're all espousing all these political ideas and all these other things that we believe or we think, the way that we live and our vision of the good life is radically similar. We're actually way more alike than we are not alike. Here's what I mean. Imagine for just a minute that you have five young interns from Fox News and five young interns from MSNBC, and I take them out for drinks, take them all out, and I just have a conversation, and I would imagine it would be rigorous debate and outrage and disagreement and yelling, and you're crazy, I can't believe you believe that or see the world that way, right? That's what would happen. Now just imagine for just a minute that we had a video camera and we could follow each one of those people around for a week, seven days. You know what you would find? that the way that they live is shockingly similar. Their approach to money, their approach to sexuality, their approach to what the good life is, their approach to what they do with their free time, how they live, how they treat other people, how they engage in relationships. At the, here's the point. At the core of all of these ideas and concepts that we're all espousing and saying deep down inside of us is this. It's this reality that I am my own authority. And it doesn't matter what you say. I get to call the balls and strikes on this one. And I get to say what is right and wrong. I get to be the boss of my own life. That's behind all of our culture today. We have a shared view of human flourishing, and here's what it is. It's personal freedom and autonomy. Nobody can tell me what's right or wrong. I have to find the unique way that I'm wired, and then I've got to express that. The world is my canvas, and I've just got to be true to myself. So I want to show you this Venn diagram that we have uh, just to kind of show you how it feels like we're polar opposites, but actually in the middle is freedom of self, freedom of authority, no authority other than my own. And this is leading to profound anxiety in our culture. Uh, I, found, um, I found this picture I want to show you of kind of describing uh, what our culture thinks instinctively. So we'll show you this other picture. This is the wisdom of our day. The thing that makes you happy, yes, do that. That was in a bathroom of a place that I would frequent. And that's just instinctively in our culture, isn't it? What's going to make you happy? We'll just do that. What's going to give you pleasure? We'll just do that. What's going to make you really feel alive? We'll just do that. And, and it's almost like, well, how far can we take this? And I don't know, but here's what's really crazy. This concept has even made its way into the church. And here's what's really, really disheartening. Sometimes I hear pastors on the coasts talk about how hard it is to be a Christian in a secular culture. And I just want to call them up and be like, you have no idea what it's like to be a pastor in the middle of the Bible belt. You know why? Because we have the worst of secular culture still being imbibed in our own culture, right? And we've just attached Jesus on top of it. So Jesus is now my personal bellboy that he, you know, runs my errands and does my biddings and he's helping me get the good life that I want. And now you have this DIY type of uh, spirituality or Christianity where people are like, you know, I like this bit around this and this and Jesus' teachings here and here, but this bit around sexuality, I don't really like that. That doesn't work for me, so I'm not going to take that. So we're taking and picking and choosing what we want. And here's what's so crazy, that somehow along the way, even people who consider themselves followers of Jesus are somehow not actually following Jesus. They're just following themselves. They become their own authority. Mark Sayers says this. He says, what we're experiencing 
is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. How's that working for our culture? Well, it's bizarre. We are the most anxious culture I think that's ever lived. Anxiety is rapidly on the rise. Happiness is rapidly on the decline. There's, there's a real report called the World Happiness Report. Like, that's an actual thing, the World Happiness Report. The UN put it together. They do this every year, and they judge, based on all these factors, the happiness of nations. And for the last few years, America has been rapidly declining in happiness. We're doing our own thing. We're building our own kingdoms. We're becoming our own kings and queens. We've pushed God out just to, uh, you know, be our personal bellboy. And yet, on top of all of that, it hasn't brought us real freedom. It hasn't brought us real human flourishing. It hasn't brought us thriving. It's just brought anxiety and a decrease of happiness and an increase of depression. So if that feels like real to you, if you can resonate with that, if you're like, yeah, this feels like not only my life, but the life of our world and our culture, I've got really good news for you. You ready? Here's the good news. That it is into their culture then and our culture today that Jesus speaks. He actually speaks. Imagine this. God comes and he opens up his mouth and he tells us some stuff. Don't you want to hear what it is? Matthew 5 verse 1. Look at it with me. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed. Now we'll just pause there. This is so significant. What Jesus is doing is so loaded both what he's doing with his body and climbing a mountain and what he's doing and opening his mouth and what he's saying are loaded with meaning and significance and power. Mountains for the Jewish people are a big deal. And that might sound weird, but really for all ancient peoples, mountains were a really, really big deal. Uh, uh, Jonathan Pennington in his excellent commentary on this uh, passage, he says this. He says, throughout the ancient world and today, High places are understood as the location where gods speak and reveal. Ancient Israel is no exception, and mountains played key roles in the turning points in Israel's history, thereby making mountains potent theological symbols. One can think of Mount Ararat, Mount Carmel, Mount Gilead, Mount Moriah, Mount Pishka, and Mount Zion. Each of these and many others are rich with evocations in Israel's history. So here's the point, that when Jesus is climbing this mountain, he's not just trying to get distance from the crowd, like when he was getting in a a boat to teach. He's not just trying to get up on a mountain so that he can have a good view of the crowd and have really good acoustics. When Jesus is climbing a mountain, there's something inherent that the people of Israel are, are seeing here. Jesus is doing something that's reminding them of another guy in the Old Testament who climbed a mountain and taught and delivered a law. Do you know who it was? His name was Moses. And this is so crazy. You can even see the similarities of Jesus and Moses all throughout Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 leading up to this point. He's like intentionally wanting you to read Jesus and go, that reminds me of this guy Moses. So if you don't know anything about Moses, let me just tell you. The people of Israel in the Exodus, uh, what was happening here is that they're enslaved in Egypt. They're oppressed with this harsh Pharaoh and, and, and they're, they're working nonstop and life is miserable. And this lasts for 400 years. They're crying out to God. God, do you see us? God, will you deliver us? God, how long will we have to be slaves in Egypt under cruel oppression? And they're crying out. And then after 400 years of silence, 
God finally speaks. And he raises up this man named Moses who has this miraculous birth. Like he never should have survived, but he's got this miraculous birth. And at one point he, he's driven out to the wilderness for 40 years. And then he comes back and he, and he speaks to Pharaoh and he says, God demands you to let his people go. And through this weird, crazy series of events uh, called the Exodus, the people of Israel are brought out of Egypt and they cross over the Red Sea and they make it to the other side and all the Egyptian army is killed in the process and God has victory for the people of Israel. If you were a Jewish person prior to the New Testament, this is your salvation story. People say, who are you? And you go, well, we were in a foreign land and we were slaves and And then God, he heard our cry and he raised up a mighty deliverer who came to our rescue and he brought us out and we crossed over the Red Sea from death to life and and, and we've been made new, a new people. And then what's so crazy is Moses then, he's driving the people, he's leading the people eventually into the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, they come to a mountain, right? It's called Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain and he speaks with God. And here's the big idea. God gives Moses the law, the law. And then Moses comes down the mountain through a weird series of events and he delivers the law to the people of Israel. And here's what I want you to see. This law is designed to form the people of Israel as the unique countercultural people of God in the world. So you've got all of these other nations that are supposed to look at the people of Israel and look at their sex ethic and look at their, the way that they eat and look at the way that they dress and look at the way that they live and their justice and their mercy and their care for the poor. And all these other nations are supposed to look at Israel and go, that is the craziest thing I've ever seen. I've got to know more about this God. They're to be a light to the nations, a salt to the earth, if you will. I mean, they're to, to shine as bright lights in the middle of a dark, dark world. So here's the idea. The people of Israel are saved by grace and then formed as the unique people of God with the law. The law is not a bad thing, although there's some things about it that definitely do crush us and drive us to our need for more of God's help and grace. But the law was meant to form the people of God as the unique people of God. Grace and then the law. Now, fast forward to the time of the first century. You have another 400 years of silence. It's pretty interesting. 400 years of, God, where are you? God, how long? God, do you see our oppression? God, Nebuchadnezzar is attacked and the temple had been destroyed and we've tried to rebuild it, but it's not that great anymore. And now the Romans are here and we're oppressed. And God, where are you? Do you see us? When's the Messiah gonna come? When is the redemption gonna come? When is salvation gonna come? And then Matthew opens up his story with a genealogy. How lame does that sound, right? Right? The silence is broken with a genealogy, but the very first line is this. Here's Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. And the whole idea is like, oh, David was a powerful king, and Abraham was the chosen people of God to bless the whole world, and here's the son of David and the son of Abraham. And, and then all of a sudden, fast forward in the story, and we see Jesus beginning to do his ministry. So look at this in Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and look at this, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus, this person who had a miraculous birth, 
This person who had just spent 40 days in the wilderness, he now comes out of the wilderness and he's saying, hey, I'm bringing a better exodus. I'm bringing a better salvation. And this isn't just uh, from oppression. This is from the real oppression caused by sin. This isn't just from your physical enemies like Egypt or Rome. This is from your real enemies, Satan, sin, and death. I'm coming to deliver my people. I'm coming to heal my people. I'm coming to forgive my people. I'm coming to redeem my people. And then, in Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he climbs a mountain and he begins to teach. Grace and salvation, and now he's about to give us the law to form us as the unique people of God in the world. Here's the big idea that I want you to see. If you don't take up anything else from this, this is just like intro to Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is both our Savior and our teacher. And both are important. Look at this again in Matthew 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. One of the things that was really shocking to me in studying the Sermon on the Mount is this realization that I've had that I'm so thankful for the gospel-centered movement. If you don't know what that is, um, most of us grew up in a very legalistic context if you grew up in church. And, and here's how we were taught often growing up. Well, Abraham was a good guy, be like Abraham. And David did some good things right, so just be like David. And, you know, all these other people in the Bible, they're just heroes that you should aspire to be like and be better and try harder and do more. And it was crushing, wasn't it? And then all of a sudden the gospel-centered movement comes in and it's like, hey, actually, you're reading the whole Bible wrong. What if the Bible isn't about all these heroes that we're to aspire to be like and emulate? What if the whole Bible is actually a story about Jesus and him being the better Abraham and the better Moses and the better David? And he's the only one that can live perfectly in our place. He's the only one that can ultimately go to a cross and die for our sins and rise again. And the whole Bible is really a story about him. Praise God for that. But you know what's really crazy? Somehow in that mix... I had forgotten that the story didn't start with Jesus dying on a cross. That's so important. But the story actually starts with Jesus teaching for three years. And here's what is so dangerous, is if you think that you can embrace Jesus as your savior, but not actually embrace Jesus as your teacher, then you are not actually following Jesus. You just have this idea of what it is to be a Christian in your head. You have to have him both as savior and teacher. Jesus came to save. Praise God for that. But do you know what he also came to do? He came to teach. He came to teach. And the things that he taught are probably very different than what you were taught growing up. He came to teach. What did he came to teach? Well, the very first word, look, blessed or blessed. We're going to get into this next week, but that word is not a great translation because it's makarios in in Greek, and and there's no English equivalent for that word. So some translations try to say, well, it's like happiness, or it's like flourishing, or, or something, and those are getting more accurately to what Jesus is talking about. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am here to announce what the good life really is. I am here to show you what real human flourishing really is. I'm here to announce how to be really blessed, not in the sense of, you know, what we think, but how to line yourself up with actual reality. Jesus is going to tell us how to live the good life, how to find the good life. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about lust. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about retaliation. He's going to talk about forgiveness. He's going to talk about enemy love. He's going to talk about prayer. He's going to talk about all these things that are going to rub us culturally all the wrong ways. And you're going to get to make a decision. Do you want to actually embrace Jesus as Savior and teacher? Or do you just want to continue to live in your own authority. So let me end with this. 
the most important question that you need to grapple with today and over the next 14 weeks is this question, who or what is the authority in your life? This whole sermon is an authority claim. This is Jesus climbing a mountain in authority, handing down his law in authority. And it's a law of grace, and it's a law of love, and it's a law of mercy, but it is a law for the people of God nonetheless. Jesus is handing down his vision of true human flourishing and the good life. And he's inviting us to come and embrace him both as our Savior and as our teacher. So who's, who's the authority? Is it your vision of sex? Is it your vision of progressive realities or conservative realities? Is it your vision of money and how to treat people and what to do with people that are your enemies and on and on and on? Or, or is it what Jesus says and taught? So the earliest Christian confession is so, so important for us to recover. It's Jesus is Lord. That was the confession, and that's what we need to recover. So in light of all of that, let me close like this. There are two important mountains that Jesus climbs in his earthly life and ministry. This is the very first mountain. It's the mountain that he climbs in authority to be the better Moses, to hand down a better law than what Moses gave the people of God. But there's another mountain that he climbs near the end of his life, and this mountain is called Golgotha. And he climbs up on the mountain and he climbs up on a cross and he does it in our place. And he actually grabs our sin. He grabs our failings. He grabs all the ways that we can't keep the law. He grabs all the ways that we fail even to the vision of the good life that he holds out to us. He grabs all of that and he puts it on himself. And out out of an act of mercy and love and devotion to you and me, he gives his life in our place for us. Jesus dies so that we don't have to die. Jesus dies under the wrath of God so that we could experience the mercy and forgiveness of God. And then he rises again from the dead and he ascends into heaven and he invites all people to himself to have him as savior and to have him as Lord and to have him as teacher. And if you will come to him, he says, come to me all who labor and all who are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. The yoke is teaching. Like take my teaching upon you and and I'll give you rest for your souls. Jesus is inviting us to have a new identity where now we get to experience what it really is to experience real human flourishing.